but we're back. <laughs> Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 49, verses 29 to 33, and then following with Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 26. We're reading firstly of the death of Jacob. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place for Ephron, the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, he drew his feet up in bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And from Genesis 50, from verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sin and the wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I am in the place of God. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and then he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And now the death of Joseph. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir or Manasseh were placed at the birth of Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of our Lord. I'd just like to begin by saying how uh, grateful I am to Rob Kelman. You're a champion, mate. Keep up the great work. <laughs> and, uh, and I also wanted to just encourage you to consider coming along to the upper room tomorrow night here at 7.30 where we're, we're going to be 
praying for the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, and we're also going to focus on our new life in Christ, given that it's spring and all of the associations that that brings with it. So here at 7.30 for a special time of worship and communion and prayer. Well, as Matt said at the start of today's service, today we reach the conclusion of a 50-chapter book that we have studied over three terms in three different years. That feels significant. Even though we have arrived at the end of Genesis, this is by no means the end. As you might recall, Genesis means beginning or origin. So it's going to be normal if the book concludes uh, with a little bit like to be continued. And that's how it does. In today's reading, there are three distinguishable scenes. Jacob's death, the subsequent interaction between Joseph and his brothers, and Joseph's death. It's never nice when the hero of a story dies. But in this case, both Jacob and Joseph die well. And they die in hope of God fulfilling his promises. Before he passed away, Jacob left very specific instructions about where he was to be buried. Whilst he was in Egypt at the time of his death, Egypt was not in him. And he wanted to clearly convey this to his sons. Jacob's demand that he be buried in the promised land, in the family burial plot, speaks of the faith that he had that God would be faithful to his promises of returning Israel to the land of Canaan. The desire to be buried in the promised land testifies to the fact that Jacob died in absolute hope that God would indeed return his people and fulfill his covenant promises. It is no doubt significant that Jacob, who God had symbolically changed his name to Israel, returns to the promised land upon his death. Perhaps it serves as a foretaste of promise and assurance to the nation of Israel as they read this ancient text that the place where Israel indeed belonged was in the promised land. And when they weren't there, the fact that Israel himself had been buried in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, would have given them hope and assurance that that was their true home. Israel would not remain in Egypt permanently. The reference of being gathered to his people, which sounds somewhat comforting, indicates a belief in an afterlife in the company of one's ancestors. Chapter 50, verses 1 to 14, which we have skipped over, details the burial proceedings of Jacob. And everything is done in Egyptian style, the embalming, the journey to bury Jacob accompanied by Egyptian officials, and the lamenting all demonstrate that Jacob is being treated as royalty and given the same dignity that someone of very high office would receive in the land. And this is unquestionably due to the significance of Joseph. After the death and burial of Jacob, Joseph's brothers are fearful of how he might treat them. Will he finally get revenge over them 
the enduring power of guilt rears its ugly head. In spite of Joseph's kindness and acceptance demonstrated in chapter 45, the brothers are still not yet rid of their guilt. Guilt can have a terrible stronghold over us, can't it? The brothers send a message to Joseph's, saying that their father, before his death, had left express instructions for Joseph to forgive his brothers of their terrible treatment of him. All the commentary that I read on this passage seemed to indicate that this was in fact a lie concocted by the brothers. Nowhere in the text is there any indication that Joseph gave, sorry, that Jacob gave any such instructions to either the brothers or to Joseph himself. And again, what we see here is, is guilt playing out, trying to find a way forward. Now, as observers, as readers of this ancient text, we can only speculate why Joseph at this point wept. Several years had passed since uh, from the brothers' initial confrontation with Joseph. And Joseph had since generously resettled them in the land of Goshen, where they were getting on with their life. Perhaps Joseph felt sad that even after all this time, and even after his attempts to assure them of his kindness and graciousness, perhaps he was feeling sad for them that they were still riddled with this sense of guilt. Perhaps he was triggered by the emotion of their betrayal so many years earlier as it all flashed before his eyes again. Whatever was going on for Joseph at this point, what I love about the text is there's a sense of authenticity in his emotion and his response. It's one of the things I love about the Word of God. It's not void of emotion. And that, particularly when we're looking at narrative as we are now, the emotion is not removed. The emotion remains. And this, to me, speaks of the gift of humanity. And God's affirming of that. Joseph's dream is also being fulfilled again as his brothers bow before him. But this, in fact, is the very first time that the brothers bow before Joseph, fully aware of who he is. You see, all the other times that they'd bowed before him, they weren't aware of his identity. So at this point, at the end of the book, in a way, we see the fulfillment of that dream that Joseph had all the way back in chapter 37 with his brothers all bowed before him, prepared to offer themselves as his slaves. Joseph's response, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God, is another confirmation of his ongoing trust and belief in Yahweh. And the irony was here that in Egypt, he was effectively like a god. I mean, Pharaoh was the god. And Joseph was second only to Pharaoh. For him to say, am I in the place of God, is an interesting thing for him to say. Because he had so much power and authority. If he wanted to exact revenge against his brothers, he very easily could have. 
But what this shows us is that even though Joseph is thoroughly Egyptian now in his outward appearance and the task set before him as prime minister, his heart and his roots as a believer in Yahweh have not altered or changed one iota. He is still a man of God. Verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, functions as an overarching theme that could be applied to the whole book of Genesis and indeed on a broad scale, the whole Bible. In spite of humanity's rebellion and rejection of God's way, Yahweh is firmly in control and will achieve and accomplish good outcomes even out of evil deeds. Joseph lived to 110 years of age and had the great blessing of seeing three generations of grandchildren. Like his father Jacob, Joseph wishes to be buried in the promised land. But Joseph is prepared to wait in Egypt with his family. Joseph acts in faith. He does not see the outcome, but he believes in faith. He epitomizes Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not yet see. Joseph does not see the exodus from Egypt. He does not see Israel receive possession of the promised land, but he firmly believes that it will happen one day and that he will join God's people as they are delivered. Genesis ends with a haunting picture. The final verse of the final chapter reads, So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The story of Genesis that began with God creating a beautiful paradise for humanity to enjoy, ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt, waiting, waiting for God to bring his people back to the promised land. You really can't get much further apart than Eden, a place of perfection, beauty, and freedom, and relationship, <laughs> to death in a coffin in Egypt, of all places. These are the bookends of this book of origins. Now, Joseph is going to have to wait a long time. But as we know the story, God eventually does come through. And when he does come through, and through Moses, when God does deliver the Israelites from the land of Egypt, Joseph, uh, Joseph's bones are taken with the Israelites, and he is eventually laid to rest with his ancestors in the promised land. Now, as Vince rightfully asked last Sunday, 
relevance does this text have to us here today in 2015? I mean, let's face it. On the surface, this is a story about two ancient guys who died. (laughs) One wanted to be buried in Canaan. Another was content to remain in Egypt until such a time as God would lead his people home. And even though there was a 400-year wait in Egypt before that deliverance, and then there was a 40-year journey in the desert to return to the promised land, that was still only temporary when they returned. God's people no longer dwell in a promised land. Ultimately, according to the Bible, God's promise of land means the return of paradise on earth. Now, we are only in the book of beginnings. So to get closure and to understand the final fulfillment, we have the book of Revelation to turn to. And Revelation chapter 22 speaks or specifically foretells of Eden's restoration. When Jesus hung on the cross, one of the criminals crucified with him begged him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus died and rose again to restore us to paradise. In John 14, 2, Jesus said to his disciples, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? At the Last Supper, Jesus stated, I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Today we are much like Joseph and the Israelites, waiting, waiting for God to come and fulfill his promise to restore us to the promised land, to paradise on earth. Sometimes, understandably, we give up hope. The world around us seems to be falling further and further away from God's good purposes. We see moral decay, war, injustice, corruption, and natural disasters. Certainly on a global scale, the Syrian refugee crisis is case in point. But even here, on our own home turf, there have been all kinds of things happening that may cause us to question if God will come and turn things around. You see, all the signs would suggest that God is not turning things around. And we can lose hope and we can lose despair. And we can forget that God has promised that his kingdom will come. In 2 Peter 3, verse 3 to 3, Chapter 3, verse 13, Peter writes, In accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. As God's people, we should not give up hope in the coming of a new earth where righteousness is at home. 
And we're according to Revelation 21, verse 4, death will be no more, nor will mourning or crying or pain. We must constantly remind ourselves and each other that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. God is sovereign and in control of his plan. He is not on an extended vacation. The Joseph story clearly teaches us that God can even use evil plans and turn them around for his good purpose. The book of Genesis is a story full of human error and failing to live out the God-intended life. But it is equally a story of the faithful covenant God who is determined to fulfill his promises and save the lives of many. Let us not give up hope. Our God is in control and he will, as his word says, make all things new. In the meantime, though, do we simply just wait? Are we like Joseph, stuck in a coffin in Egypt, waiting for our final deliverance? On the one hand, yes. We find ourselves living in the now and not yet season of God's kingdom, finding its complete fulfillment on earth. On the other hand, no. Jesus won't allow us to simply sit idly by. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was offering an invitation for people to get involved in a project of bringing heaven to reign on earth, a restoration of Eden, if you like. You see, Eden was so much more than a beautiful, idyllic garden. Eden was a place of untainted love, a place of perfect connection between creator and creation. It was a place of peace, justice, equity, belonging, delight, safety, and rest. Our faith, therefore, needs to find robust expression in rolling up our sleeves and working in partnership with God in all that He is doing to restore, to renew, and to remake this broken and fallen world. As much as I love beautiful gardens, Restoring Eden is so much more than just creation care, as important as that is. It is doing all that we can as God's people to live for and to promote kingdom values. Truth prevailing over lies. Justice prevailing over injustice. Uh, compassion and mercy prevailing over cruelty. Our role as God's people is to live our lives in such a way that offers people a foretaste of that glorious day when God's kingdom reign on earth will be equal to his reign in heaven. And this, my friends, brings us to the conclusion of the book of beginnings. Let's pray.
Loving Father, we thank you so much for your word and all that we have learnt over these past three series through the book of Genesis. We thank you, Lord, in this grand tale. We read of your wonderful, majestic creation, that you indeed are the creator God. And we learn of your sovereign hand over all things. We learn of the sinfulness of humankind and the rebellion of our hearts. And yet in spite of our consistent failings to get it right and to live according to your ways, you, O God, are relentlessly pursuing people's hearts and lives to be turned back to you. Thank you that you, O Lord, are a faithful God, that you are a true God, that you uphold your word and your promises to us. And so I pray this morning that for each one of us, wherever we are on our journey of faith, would be filled with hope that indeed a day is coming when all things will be made new and put to right. And in the meantime, empower and equip us by your Holy Spirit to partner with you in all that you're doing to restore and to renew and to remake this broken world. May we do it in faith, in hope and in love for the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.